And uh, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, as we continue on in our series in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of layers to what Paul is saying and the things that he is pursuing pastorally in this section of the letter. We've seen uh, a number of them so far. One layer we've looked at quite a bit is showing us how generosity in giving and generosity in forgiveness overlap. And we've seen that one way to grow in the practice of opening your heart in forgiveness is to grow in the practice of opening your hand in giving and vice versa, right? Uh, releasing bitterness in your heart and bearing the sacrifices necessary to openly forgive and welcome someone, even someone who hurt you deeply, in Jesus' name, will help you learn how to open your hand in Jesus' name and bear the sacrifices necessary to be generous to someone, even if you don't know them. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, and we've, of course, seen that it works that way, and I think this is important to say because these things go together in the open-handed, open-hearted love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. After all, Jesus is who he is because his hands and his heart are open wide to us. And then from there, we looked at another layer last week, which is how does Jesus then address the jealousy in our hearts, which wants to constrain generosity. And we saw that God responds to jealousy by showing us that his generosity is wise, that he knows exactly the kinds of people that he's given his gifts to, and that he gives them in such a way that uh, he sufficiently meets the needs of all his people. And then from that truth, we heard God invite us to trust him that our jealous and envious judgments are just not true. And God calls us to generosity by asking us to trust that Jesus knows how to make use of all his gifts so that his goodness and his blessings will redound to all his people into the world. This morning we're going to add another layer by looking at how God grows willing, joyful generosity in his people. Uh, so just to set the stage quickly, this morning you're going to hear Paul say that he sent Titus and Apollos ahead of him. Uh, he names them later on in chapter 8. In our passage, he just calls them bro the brothers. So he sent Titus and Apollos ahead of him because he was afraid that the diaconal free will offering that we talked about last week wouldn't be ready by the time he got there. And you're going to hear Paul say that he wants to avoid this so that neither he nor they would be embarrassed or humiliated in front of uh, the Christians from Macedonia that are going to come with them to receive the offering. Now, I know on the surface, that may not sound very spiritual, right? Like, why are you worried about being humiliated and embarrassed, Paul? Like, don't you trust Jesus? Um, but let me ask you this. Has anyone ever made a really energetic excited promise to you, whether that's financially or physically, and they're like, hey, I really want to help with that. You give me a call. I'm here for you. Day or night, you know, text me. We'll get it done. And then you get really excited. You build your plans around their offer, and then you call them and ask them for the help that they promised. 
but then they respond with hurt or frustration or anger. Maybe they even tell you not to be so selfish. And you think, you offered. Like, I didn't make you promise. You just freely promised. And after that happens, what happens to your relationship with them? It's damaged, right? If it's not totally broken, at least now it has some distrust in it. That's the problem Paul wants to avoid. That's what he's talking about, as we'll see, with the idea of being humiliated or embarrassed. And what you're going to see and what we're going to talk about is that Paul wants to avoid that by working to form a more generous life in the Corinthians through the ministry of the church and of the, the two brothers, Titus and Apollos specifically. And then from there, we're going to think about how the church and the saints help us then to become more generous. So let's read our passage. We'll pray, and then we'll start considering it under the three points on the board there. First, the spiritual formation of church giving. Second, generosity grows by practice. And then finally, generosity grows by example. All right, so 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's give our full attention now to God's word. Jesus tells us, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. This father reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to consider uh, this word which we know you have given to us as a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, as a way to lead us more into uh, conformity with Christ and the blessings that are found in being united to him, uh, we know that unless your spirit goes out with your word, it will be useless to us. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may they all now be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to meditate on together is this idea of the spiritual formation of church giving, the idea that Church giving helps form the image of Christ in us. And here I want to sort of just look at verse 1, and then I'm going to use it as a launching point to consider the larger issue of tithes and offerings in the Christian life. And I'm doing that because I've, I've gotten some good questions from some of you about giving tithes and offerings, and I think that this is a good opportunity to address those questions kind of uh, in one shot. Uh, and like last week, I'm going to do my best to keep this point short but I think it's important, and so I'm not going to gloss over it either. Okay, in 9 verse 1, Paul says this. He says, I'm going to read again. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. So if you're like me, you sort of spent your entire Christian life reading this verse 
as something of a pious way of flattering the Corinthians and opening their hearts to the poor in the larger church. But over the, the last year as I've studied and read 2 Corinthians, I've learned that that just is not really what's going on here. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of, of that, but it's just not the majority of what's going on. So what I've learned is what Paul calls the ministry of the saints, you saw that name there, is what we call the diaconal offering. And it might be helpful to know that the word translated as ministry is just the Greek word for diaconal, hence our name, diaconal offering. Uh, now we know that this diaconal offering, this, this offering for the ministry of the saints, for those who are poor and needy within the churches of Jesus, was not a one-time special offering but was a regular part of the worship services in all of Jesus's churches in the first century. And while we don't know for sure the frequency of collection in every single congregation in Jesus's church back then, we do know for a fact the frequency in Corinth and in Galatia. And I have a feeling it was probably pretty standard practice in all of Jesus's churches. So like us, they received their diaconal offering every Sunday. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read it for you just so you can hear it. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, the diaconal offering, the same thing. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, which is Sunday, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. You see, giving to the diaconal needs of the local church and the larger church was a regular part, a weekly part of Christian worship in the churches of Jesus, just like here. And this is why Paul says it's superfluous to write to them about it. Uh, this practice has already been established and was followed since he first wrote to them uh, a number of years before but yet I think we can also say it wasn't totally superfluous for him to write about it, was it? Well, we're going to get to that. But first, I want to step back and say that we also know that the churches didn't only receive weekly diaconal offerings. They also received weekly offerings for the funding of their regular church life, for things like paying the pastor, paying for food, doing evangelism projects, and even probably renting facilities for worship. Uh, so not only did do we know that Christians you know, met in synagogues in this period, we've talked about that, but there's also some evidence that they may have rented spaces within the synagogue for their gatherings after kind of their worship services. And all of these would fit under what we call the general fund in our church today. So where do we see this? I think that's an important question. I promise this wouldn't be long, so I'm going to just... You know, stay out of the weeds. Two easy places to see this. 1 Corinthians 9, 9, 1 Timothy 5, 18. You don't have to remember these. I'm going to read them. Uh, in both passages, Paul talks about the obligation of churches to pay their pastors and to take care of the logistical needs of a local congregation. So in those passages, Paul talks about how pastors and apostles all have a rightful claim to share in the material life of the congregation. 
And in 1 Timothy 5.18, he'll say that church leaders who do their job well are worthy of a double portion of honor. So 1 Corinthians 9.9, there's a share. 1 Timothy 5.18, there's a double portion of honor. Don't worry, this is not going to turn into a sermon about how you need to pay your pastor more. Like, we're fine, we're content. Uh, But I have to talk about it because those words share and portion or double portion of honor are actually very technical terms. They're church words. Uh, They're used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, to translate how each portion or share of the tithes and offerings in ancient Israel were to be distributed to the various people and parts of God's kingdom. All the offerings come in, and then there's a share or a portion that goes out from the mass collection. And we know that these offerings from which these shares and double portions were distributed were collected regularly, and again, I would assume weekly, uh, with the diaconal offering because of passages like Philippians 4.18, which is where Paul celebrates the Philippians' regular partnership in his ministry and thanks them again for sending his share of their payment, which he calls their gift and offering and share for his ministry. You don't have regular payments without regular offerings, right? And we also just know from like regular practice, you take offerings during the week. And clearly these offerings were for paying their pastor, their apostles, their church planters, renting buildings, that sort of thing. Now, since we're talking about giving and I've gotten uh, some questions on it, one quick word on tithing before I wrap up this point. So kids, tithing means... 10%. That's all it means. And if you don't know what percent is, ask your parents uh, and have them explain it in super mathematical detail. Uh, You're welcome. Um, So uh, we we talked about, well, let me step back a second. So also kids, not only does ties mean 10%, the idea was that you would give 10% of various things to the temple in the Old Testament, and then God would use that money to feed his priests, to take care of the poor, to keep up the temple, and to pay for things like the paper that the Bible was copied on. All right, So that's what tithing was for in the Old Testament, was maintaining the life of the church of Jesus. Uh, We talked about tithing kind of in depth. Uh, I don't know how many years ago when I preached on Deuteronomy. It could have been two years ago. It could have been, I don't know how long it was, but we talked about it. Uh, and to remind you, if you were here, and to introduce this perspective, if you weren't here, uh, if you look at the way that tithing works in Deuteronomy, it was way more than 10%. Because you tithe both the first and the last portions of your harvest. You tithe your grapes, and you tithe your wine, right? So you tithe raw materials, you tithe finished products, you tithe your flock, and your sacrifices. And then on top of the tithes, you were commanded to bring a whole host of other offerings. And then on top of those, you could bring free will offerings. So long story short, tithing in ancient Israel by the estimates of uh, some Old Testament scholars could mean committing anywhere between 30 to 80% of your wealth to Jesus. And the point we made from that, remember, and I want you to remember this, I want you to hear this, was not that you need to give 30 to 80% of your wealth to grace, right? That's not 
the point. The point we made was that these tithes and offerings were set up to help Israel learn through every season of life and in every area of life how to devote her wealth to the things God loves and God cares about. To teach his people how to devote the gifts God has given to the building up of his kingdom and to helping those around them. They were a tool that God used to teach Israel how to use the wealth he gave her to bring joy and help and blessing to others rather than as a tool for you know, pure self-aggrandizement. So if you want to use 10% as a guide for how you should give, I think you should. Uh, there's a reason God calls it a tithe, right? But it's important we recognize tithing is not a tax. It's not uh, something where you say, well, I gave my 10%, I paid my Jesus tax, we're good now, I get to use my money however I want, right? The purpose of giving it, the purpose, and the purpose of God making it a practice of regular giving is that it has a very specific goal, which is teaching us how to use our money more like God does. For the blessing, the happiness, the care of others, and for the kingdom of God. Okay, so all of this to say then, the offerings that Paul has in mind in all of his letters, whether that's the diaconal offering in our passage or the general fund offerings, are regular parts of the church's worship service. They're usually taken up weekly. And while not everyone necessarily gave weekly or gave the same amount weekly, they were all called to give. And following the logic of offerings in the Old Covenant, these offerings were received as a way to shape Christians and to shape their relationship with money in very particular ways. And here we come to the way that this connects to our last two points which is Sunday worship is about spiritual formation. This is why we come to church. It's about forming us, shaping us into the image of Jesus. And like any formation, it takes time. And that's especially true of stones, right? Remember, the Bible likes to call us stones in the temple of God. Shaping stones takes time. Specifically, it takes weekly shaping by weekly worship. The more you participate by faith in each part of the worship service, the more consistently you do that, the more intentionally you do that, the more you will be shaped into the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the worship service. And this is true whether, you're, whether we're celebrating Jesus' welcome at the beginning of worship, to confessing our sins, to receiving pardon, to praying for each other. It's true of receiving communion, baptism, and of giving to the general and diaconal funds of the church. Each part is designed by Jesus to shape you in very particular ways. Okay, let's move on to our last two points. So because of all the groundwork that was laid, these don't need to be long. Uh, our second point is that generosity grows by practice. So in our passage, I think you can see that participation in the regular diaconal offering has gone down. Paul says in verse 2, For I know your readiness, this is verse 2, For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is the area that Corinth was in, has been ready since last year. 
So Paul remembers the excitement and the frequency of their initial participation. In fact, he remembers it so vividly that he actually bragged about it to the churches in Philippi and Ephesus, right? Those are the churches of Macedonia, Philippi and Ephesus. Uh, But while Paul remembers their generosity, he goes on to say in verse 5, quote, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. If people are ready and prepared, you don't need to send someone in advance to get them ready and prepared, right? Clearly, Paul is afraid, or he knows for a fact, that the enthusiasm and the participation they had when they first started hasn't lasted, and that when they finally arrive to take their gift and bring it where it needs to go, it's not going to be a joyful celebration of God's grace. See, Paul's afraid it's going to turn into a painful time of calling upon them to fulfill their pledge. Remember, you promised to give this much out of your offering. Why is it not here? And here I think we see something that's, I think, very familiar to us. The idea of being generous, helping the poor, helping other Christians, it can be very exciting, right? Just like the idea of forgiving people who hurt us can be very exciting, especially when we remember how Christ's forgiveness blessed us, how his generosity has blessed us, and we go, yes, like, I love forgiveness. I love generosity. It's been amazing for me. I'm excited to participate. I'm ready. Right, that kind of enthusiasm sounds familiar to us. It probably describes us from time to time, right? But we also know that as time wears on, or as the cost becomes evident, or even as it takes a long-term toll, we all know that initial excitement can fade and can be replaced by apathy, fear, resentment, anxiety, or even just fatigue, right? You just get tired. I'm just tired. I'm out of of juice. And when that happens, our participation in generosity or forgiveness has to be dragged out of us as an exaction. You You said you would do this. You have to do it. That's Paul's point. Paul doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. Because not only does that harm us, right, making us resentful and potentially even callous, it also harms the people who are counting on us. Most, if not all of us, know what it feels like to be made to feel greedy or uncaring for asking someone to fulfill a promise they made to us. And since we know that this offering was collected weekly, and since we know that Paul was afraid that it wouldn't be ready when he came, I think we can guess with a high degree of certainty that people had kind of just stopped participating in it. And that lack of participation was going to hurt those who needed it. And asking for it as they were passing through was going to hurt those who would be called to give it. And so Paul sent Titus and Apollos to them, not to shame them or hurt them or berate them, not to harangue them, which I think is the word that congregations used to say when pastors would guilt trip them. 
Right, we got a real haranguing today. That's the colonial word. Uh, that's not what they were doing. He sent them to help them restart their practice of regular giving each week in the worship service. Because the way out of spiritual fatigue and tiredness is to join God in his refreshing means of grace. It's to join God in the way he gives and shapes Jesus in us, which is inherently life-giving. Because when you receive Jesus and are made to look like him, you are receiving the one who is resurrection life. Right? And then to borrow from next week's sermon, I think you can see that they were going to do that not by asking them to give a lot, but by reminding them that when they give, they are giving to Jesus. And that Jesus responds to his people's giving by giving them joy. So restart the practice of giving, even if it's just a little bit, because the result will be joy. And with that joy will come open hearts and open hands. Uh, we're going to talk about this more next week. But this weekly participation in, in the offering is how cheerful giving God loves a cheerful giver. That's the next verses. Cheerful giving grows in the Christian's life. And that's why Paul sent people to help them practice it, as opposed to just sending them a letter that commanded it, right? There's a reason Paul sent people and not just bare commandments. So before moving on to our final point, if you are feeling worn out or angry or bitter because of helping, God has given us a worship service that's designed to help us move through those seasons and to shape us more into the joyful, peaceful, rested Christians who can give generously. And the encouragement that Jesus has for you here is use the worship service God has given you. If that's you, participate again. It doesn't have to be a huge amount. Give what you can give out of joy and trust that Jesus will respond by giving you Jesus, by giving you himself in his grace. Final point, briefly. I just said that Paul sent people rather than bare commands. Uh, and, and this is because we don't only grow in generosity uh, by practice, but we also grow in generosity by example. And here, let me just read verses 2 and 3 again, and then I'll give one quick reflection. Verse 2, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, again, that's where Corinth is, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. So Paul here talks about how the he used the Corinthians as an example of generosity and that that example motivated the Macedonian Christians. And, and I think we all know why Paul did this, right? Isn't it true that when Christians watch or even just hear about the generosity of other Christians, the spirit stirs up the desire for us to be generous too, right? There's just something spiritually inspiring about watching or even just hearing about other Christians join Jesus in loving others and in being generous. 
But in the same breath, Paul then also talks about how his fear that if the Macedonian Christians of Philippi and Ephesus don't see the Achaian Christians of Corinth living up to that boast of generosity, that they'll be essentially deflated. Because isn't it also true on the flip side that just like Christian generosity can be motivating, Christian stinginess, Christian half-heartedness or begrudgingness can be deflating and disillusioning. The word Paul uses is humiliating. And I think that's, that's an, it's important to say that this word for humiliation doesn't only describe the emotion of humiliation, but the result. It, it's, the, it's the perfect word choice. It has to be because God chose the word. I understand that. But it just fits so well here. What happens when we find Christians being tight-fisted or half-hearted or begrudgingly giving what they promised? Well, usually a separation or a rift opens up in their relationships. And that's what humiliation means. It means you've taken an action that has made it hard for us to walk together in joy and in peace. And this is probably going to be interesting for you. This is the word the Septuagint uses to describe relationships that are harmed or broken by ungodly behavior. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, or excuse me, the stone, he's become, he's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, right? Jesus has become a stone of stumbling. The Septuagint uses the word humiliation. Because of the way that you wanted Jesus to be, but he wasn't, and because of your refusal to walk with him, there's been a humiliation. There's been a separation in your ability to walk with God in peace and joy. That's what Paul uses. He chooses that word to describe the result of uh, exacting giving. And obviously, Paul doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. But notice that on top of sending Apollos and Titus to help them restart their practice of generosity, he also shares with them, in reverse now, the example of the Macedonians' generosity. Because he knows that just like the example of the Corinthians' generosity helped the Macedonians, so now the example of the Macedonians is going to help the Corinthians, as well as the personal examples of Titus and Apollos. And what this shows us is the importance of the whole church community in building generosity in each other. Because notice Paul does not say, hey, go read your Bibles more. Go pray more. Get your tiredness figured out. Like, you know, fix yourself. Get some bootstraps and pull yourself up by them. No, he says, I'm going to give you people to show you how to be generous, to walk with you as you go through the season of fatigue, to encourage you. Here's the example of the larger church, which is not tired at this particular moment. They're excited. Remember what it's like. Look, see, it's an example that example is also important in restarting the practice of generosity. Not guilt trips and harangues. But hey, I get that it's hard and you're frustrated and there's some things going on. But like, let me help you. I'll walk with you. Like, watch me. Watch them. Let me encourage you. That's why he sent Titus, who had a deep heart for them, and Apollos, who helped Paul first bring them the gospel. And what this shows us is that godly generosity, just like godly forgiveness, which Paul has tied together in so many ways in this letter, right? It doesn't happen just through individual practice, but through communal 
life together through church life. And so to bring this all back to the beginning, it's by weekly worship with Jesus. It's by walking with each other in Jesus' name each week and Sunday and throughout the week that we grow into the image of Jesus by practice and example and encouragement in building one another up. So if you want to grow in generosity, or if you want others to grow in generosity, uh, if you want grace to grow in generosity, as I hope we all do, we will do that as we all together participate more and more in weekly worship and by walking together in godliness throughout the week, because that's the way the Holy Spirit patiently, slowly, but really forms Christ in us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your patient work in forming the image of Christ in us. Uh, please help us to walk with each other in your name and by your grace as examples and encouragers of generosity. Uh, and please help us and continue allowing us to gather together every Sunday so that through your worship service, we would know you more and be changed more and more into the image of Christ. Uh, because we want to know you and we want our life together to bring you glory and honor and praise. And so we ask that uh, those who are that as those who are blessed to carry the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that you would bless us in this way. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.